0: .NET Rocks episode 876 with guest Kevin Klein. Recorded live Thursday, May 16th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Teller, offering the best in developer tools and support, and by Franklin's.NET, makers of Gesture Pack a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app. Available now for Windows phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and
1: Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here. And um, what can I say? The studio is looking really nice these days. We, we're just building some movable baffles here, and uh, in anticipation of a heavy summer season that includes a lot of acoustic acts. So nice. So why are the baffles movable? Well, they're on wheels, just so that you can move them around. And they—they um, they sort of, you know, they have sound absorption. Some are about five feet high, so and, and uh, one of them is short. You know, so if there's going to be somebody sitting down, but it's great because we can have horns out here, we can have an upright bass player, you know, we can put one around the drums, one around the piano, just sort of separates and isolates
2: uh, in an open space. It's kind of cool, custom made. As opposed to one of us being in Connecticut and one of us being in Romania, that's <laughs> not separation at all. Yeah, that's right. And our guest
1: in Nashville, it's a it's a skypomatic <laughs> show today, as most of our shows are. Yep, it's all over the place. All over the place. Well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. What do you got, buddy? Well, you know, I know enough about SQL to be dangerous, so I don't pretend Mm. to be... So I'm probably going to be a little bit mum on this show. I don't pretend to uh, ask stupid questions. Uh, I like to ask stupid questions, but some might just be a little too stupid for our listenership. So, But I did find... I did find a, a, a really good aggregator of SQL blogs, and that is SQLblog.com, S-Q-L-B-L-O-G.com. And uh, Kevin's blog is aggregated up there, and uh, Adam Mechanic is up there, uh, Rob Farley, like a, a whole bunch of people that, uh, that you know and love, uh, Greg Lowe, uh, and it's just a, a great place to search all the blogs and to, to see what's coming down in the
2: SQL land. So, if you need a little SQL insight, is one place to go.
1: Yeah, SQLblog.com. So, uh, I, the first thing that pops up is the, the most recent post, which is from Adam Mechanic. Insert select is broken. Ask Microsoft to fix it. Hmm, interesting. And that was from yesterday, the 15th. And is SQL, something is broken? It just seems mm. very strange to me. That seems unlikely, yes. Well, it speaks of, you know, how it is such um, SQL Server and SQL in general is such a general tool that promises to do everything. And so when things don't work the way we want, they're broken. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, in this case, he might be right. I don't know. I didn't really read the post. But it has to do with, you know, select, insert, insert, select, and moving millions of rows between tables and things and that you know what could what could go wrong really yeah sounds like a good read yeah it does sound like a good read i'm really sucked in but i got to do the show
2: so i can't read it richard who's talking to us oh no hey i grabbed a comment off of show 867 and that's the one we did with Martin range talking about t4 templates boy that touched a lot of nerves didn't it it sure did, and just a huge number of comments as well on the on the page. I grabbed one of them, and this is from Matthias Carlson, who says, Great show, Carl and Richard, and great to listen to a fellow T4 believer. I use T4 daily, and when mentioning it to other developers, they either go, huh, or yuck. <laughs>
1: That's probably yuck. <laughs>
2: okay, let's go with yuck then. I from the yuck. yuck crowd, they often complain about T4 generating unmaintainable code. Yeah. But the model template-driven T4 that Martin is lobbying for results in highly maintainable code.
1: Well, I guess, you know, you start with a template that's maintainable and you end up with
2: code that's maintainable, right? Right. And if you, and if you start with a template that's a mess, you're going to end up with code that's a mess. Exactly. Garbage in, garbage out. Applies For sure. And Matthias goes on to say, also, as the T4 template is C-sharp and .NET, your model can be as simple as an array to more advanced as fetching the schema from a table or a view or a function in a database. As the template is applied, the same on each element, you get less error-prone code and also very consistent code. For non-closed source or internal code, I think T4 is a much cleaner and more efficient way of viewing things. After looking at the T4 Include project, I really like the cherry-picking of local and remote files, tailoring exactly to the needs of the current project. Cherry picking also results in excluding lots of code that gives it more of lean output. Once you're a T4 believer, there's no going back. But there is an initial hump and a mindset shift to get over it. Uh, thanks for the great show. I've been a listener since late 2002, which is good since you didn't start until late 2002. <laughs> Keep up the good work. And that's from uh, Matthias Carlson. Hey, Matthias, thank you so much for your comment. And uh, we think T4 is pretty cool too. Yeah. And a coveted .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iPhone, and Windows Phone. And that mobile app was made by our good friends at Diatom Enterprises. And if you're looking for a mobile app of any kind, you should give them a call.
1: And uh, Richard, we're going to be at Dev Intersection in October, October 27th through the 30th. And at the same time, Angle Brackets is going on. That's Scott Hanselman's uh, web conference.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, This year, it's uh, in the fall. It's at October 27th to 30th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And we are planning big, big things. So uh, you know, it's yeah, I know it's only springtime now, but it's time to start thinking about the fall. We've got most of our content plans, the brochures are going out, new websites are up, and registration is open. And if you register for both the regular conference and either a pre-con or a post-con, we will give you a Surface or a Nexus Seven. You know, we should really just. Briefly tell the story of this because it's really interesting.
1: Um, a lot of, we did the first Dev Intersection after the road trip, and a lot of people said, Hey, you know, I recognize some of these staff here and I recognize some of these logos, and, you know, it looks a lot like the old Dev Connections. And uh, what basically happened was the Dev Connections parent company gave it up. And the people that ran Dev Connections started Dev Intersection, but they made some changes. And most notably, uh, our friend Mr. Campbell here does all the content planning, and you know how good he is at that. So, our first Dev Intersection was small, but everybody agreed the content was out of the park. And the second one was bigger, uh, the last one we did. And again, the content was just amazing. So this one, we really anticipate a large crowd. So if you want to get in on it early, you can go to devintersection.com and register. And if you use .net .netrocks, D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S, as your your code word to uh, register with, you'll get a discount. Awesome. Yeah. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much everything on the Microsoft stack, including several SQL skills courses. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Kevin Klein. Kevin is a renowned database expert and software industry veteran, a longtime Microsoft SQL server MVP, and noted leader in the IT industry. Kevin is a founder and former president of Pass, and the author of popular IT books like SQL in a Nutshell, top-rated speaker at industry trade shows worldwide, and he tweets at K.E. Klein, K-E-K-L-I-N-E, and blogs at kevinekline.com. Welcome, Kevin. Hey Carl. Hi Richard. Hey man. Well, the last time we saw you, I think was on the second road trip when we went through Nashville. We uh we 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 got a tour of your home and I believe we had
2: dinner there too, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We had a big party. It was awesome. And yeah. s- somebody played the guitar. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I must,
1: I think that was your
0: son, wasn't it? That's. yep, that's right. We don't we don't call it Music City for nothing.
1: Yeah, I remember jamming with your son out in the garage. It was mm-hmm. a lot of fun and loud, just the way yep. I like it.
2: Yep, yep. And and Kevin's also a regular guest over on Run As Radio. We talk, uh, I don't, know, at least once a year, right? Yeah, Run yep. As Radio. What is that? <laughs> we never talk <laughs> it's about a Run Secret As. Secret we are keeping. Yeah,
1: we never talk about Run As Radio on this show. That's Richard's other show. It's all about IT. He's got a lot of sh- lot of shows over there.
2: Yeah, we keep ourselves busy.
1: So anyway, we haven't done a show on SQL Server on .net rocks in a long, long time and every time we talk to Kim Tripp, you know, our head hurts. And so, you know, the voice of reason. It's always good to get a calm person like Kevin on here to talk to us about new developments in SQL Server and in things that we should that, that we can't overlook uh without spazzing us out.
0: Sure. Well, you know, there there is indeed a lot of exciting stuff going on, particularly in this SQL Server 2012 release. And if you were, you know, primarily a .NET developer, you were probably getting a, a little bit sleepy-eyed uh, if you read through a SQL Server press release from one of the, you know, the last couple versions, actually. The reason for that was Microsoft was just cranking out new feature after new feature primarily for the business intelligence side of the product right you know so if you were worried about um, you know maybe you have to integrate some transact sql code or you you know you have to write the occasional insert or update or delete or select statement there wasn't much changing in there for you uh, the 2012 release though has a lot of new stuff in there so even a, a casual .NET developer in terms of working with a relational engine on the back end even Those of us who are casually involved with relational databases do have a lot in there that we would like to check out and get a little bit uh, more acquainted with.
2: But Kevin, I thought SQL Server was done. By 2008, didn't we have every feature you could think of? What could they possibly add? Well, you know, you would think
0: that 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 might be the case. But uh, every release, at a minimum, you know, every release, they're always going to provide additional improvements to the way the query optimizer works, the way it retrieves data when you write a select statement or, or something like that. But then uh, one of the really exciting things that I think a .NET developer a member of your audience would enjoy learning about in SQL Server 2012 is something called windowing
2: functions. Have you ever heard of that? Hmm.
1: Tell us. Mm. I right. mean, I,
2: I know the term, but talk about it in the context of SQL Server. Right. So with SQL
0: Server, DBAs are always kind of shaking their finger at developers and saying, you've got to stop using cursors. You've got to stop using cursors. Because on SQL Server, um, it's designed for set what we would call a DBA would call a set based operation. You know, let's get all 3,000 right. records that you need according to the where clause of the select statement. And a lot of us as developers, we like to write code where we uh would use a cursor and kind of iterate through the records until we find those that we need. So it actually turns out that when we iterate through record by record, it's a lot slower. It uses more SQL server resources. It m- consumes more locks
2: and more memory and so forth. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I, I I remember a long time ago being told cursors bad. Mm-hmm. Right, right.
0: DBAs are always grousing at you, uh, you know, hey, don't do that. And What's happened in SQL 2012 is they've introduced some new functions in Transact SQL that give you all the good of, of cursors, row-by-row row operations, but all the good of set-based operations that grab everything in one big chunk. Wow. Yeah, it's a neat set of uh, function calls that you would you know, as a developer, I encourage you to go and look up on the books online for SQL Server, you know, maybe msdn.microsoft.com and and do a little reading on the windowing function. It
2: gives you lots of upside with very little downside. So are we literally walking row to row with the windowing function? Or are we actually grabbing sort of a window of records? Give me this 10, then give me the next 10, give me the next 10 kind of thing? You can go row by row. You can actually
0: specify the size of the the block of records you want to traverse. So if you want one at a time, you can do one at a time. Nice. If you'd rather jump in tens or hundreds, yeah, it's it's
2: a it's a really nice way to do things. And that's what I think of when I think of a windowing function. I think I want to grab a chunk of records and then grab the next chunk of records and maybe go back to the previous chunk, that sort of thing.
0: And it gives you all of the, you know, so if you're familiar with, you know, like using windowing functions in your, you know, in your C sharp code, this will not be a big leap for you. In fact, the only sure. the only da- yeah the only downside to this is just learning the
2: the T SQL um, syntax. That's it. So here's a question: What gets locked when you grab a window?
0: When when you grab w- SQL Server will perform its normal locking at the time that you execute mm-hmm. the transaction. So if you're doing reads, the good news there is that re- uh, readers don't block other readers. If you're doing writes, right then you could be uh, blocking other processes or
2: transactions that are trying to, you know, to do or write themselves. So if I'm grabbing a, I'm reading a block of 50 records to show them on the screen, that's going to hold a 50 record read lock on the back end? Yeah, it'll, it'll hold a lock on those. So now if I go to the next window and grab the next 50 records, does it free the old lock and set a new one? That's right. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of cool because, you know, you'd think when you grab the row, you have sort of specifying a bunch of rows here that you only want to show 50 at a time that it would end up locking them all. If it only locks the ones you retrieve, that's amazing. Yeah, indeed. It, it's, a, it's a great improvement if you're used
0: to, uh, you know, struggling with it and, and trying to figure out how yeah. is this going to lock or block? How am I going to deal with all these different issues? So, it's a, it's a better way for you to handle, uh, in many Different ways how to handle your your activity on a, a big set of records where you might normally um, where you might normally use a cursor,
2: right? And, and clearly lighter weight than a cursor, much much lighter weight than a regular cursor. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other goodies we need to know about?
0: Yeah, a couple other things I wanted to tell you about. Uh, one thing is uh, something called a column store index. Now this isn't hmm. going to be Yeah, it's not going to be commonly used by uh, the vast majority of of OLTP applications out there. But column store indexes are really neat in that they provide super fast performance on huge data sets. So you probably have been hearing a lot about big data. Uh, You know, that's a kind of a popular buzzword these days. Uh, And So this is intended for tables no smaller than, say, a million records. But it is enormously faster. And it's an entirely different way of doing indexes. Hmm. Yeah, if you think about indexes where, uh, you know, I'm going to index on the last name in this person's table that has, you know, 300,000 persons in it. Um, Normally, every, you know, every value in there would be kind of shuffled according to your index, uh, you know, so they'd all have pointers. So they could be looked up quickly. In a column store index, let's say there were 40 Campbells in there um or 40 franklins in there it'll actually only store one entry gotta help Be- you 40 yeah. franklins
1: <laughs> all in one room <laughs> at a
0: family reunion um with liquor um so it, it actually uh, reduces the amount of space needed uh to do the lookup but then it's an order of magnitude okay. faster just just enormously faster uh, because we're we're doing, ag- you know, it's typically for the business intelligence sort of workload, and so we care about the those values in aggregate. We're not as much trying to figure out every single Campbell or Franklin, and so it, if you are in these situations, these uh, you know special applications where we're looking at aggregated values rather than the individual person who wrote a transaction at seven in the morning. What we want to find is everybody who did transactions for this particular period of time. It makes those kind of operations really super fast.
2: Well, and I've always learned that as you add indexes, you're impacting your write performance in exchange for faster read performance. But it sounds like this is sort of a lighter weight index. And if you've got a lot of repeating data, I guess it's got to be dramatically smaller. Exactly. It, it, it's
0: perfect for that sort of situation. Again, now it's not perfect for every situation. You bring up a good point because sure. right now in this release, column store indexes are, are read only. So the idea is, you know, management, and uh, the executive suite need to pull these really super important reports. They're going to pull them every month, you know, at the end of each quarter at the end of the year, and they've got to traverse billions of records. So it'll make that kind of operation extremely fast, but it's not the sort of, uh, database object, you would just do
2: regular old inserts and updates and deletes to. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. Very, very clever stuff. It's a, it's, And it's always astonishing to me that they keep adding things. You know, it feels to me like there's been a lot of pressure on SQL in the past few years with the sort of surge of the no SQL movement. Do you bump into that at all in the work you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Yes, that that is absolutely true. The One
0: of the really interesting things that's that's happened in the last couple of years, you know, there was a lot of dust and noise uh, around big data and no and things like that. And, you right. know, if you were to do a Google search now, just on all the different uh, no sequel engines, there's hundreds, you know, I think 130 something the last time I took a serious look at it. Uh, but we've had a couple of years for the, the dust to settle a little bit. And we've had some of the better vendors and the, the better products kind of bubble up to the top. And mm-hmm. it's, It's here to stay. For anybody who would say to me, you know, and I get this more from relational database people than I do from developers, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I'll stick with my Oracle. I'll stick with my SQL server. And I tell them, you're going to have to be more open-minded than that because there are definitely applications where NoSQL
2: engines will do a much better job. Hmm. Oh, for sure. And, And And I know we've seen cases where people are abusing relational database engines for what they're storing. Oh, yeah. They try to, you know, fit that square peg in the round hole
0: and the relational database. Yeah, yeah, it's not great at at certain kind of workloads. Something I
1: noticed on SQL blogs, just reading a little bit, is that anytime anybody has a problem with SQL Server, somebody, some, you know, open source guy will snipe up and say, well, you wouldn't have that problem with an open source thing.
0: (laughs) How many times a day do you hear that? Well, we do hear it a lot, but uh, but you get the same kind of laugh, belly laugh uh, right. that uh, that I just gave because you you don't get uh, some problems, but you get a whole world of oh, other. You problems get a whole still. world
1: of other problems. That's right.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a tra- it's no, it's no different than that guy sitting in the corner room saying, "If you didn't have Ruby on Rails, you wouldn't have these problems." Yeah, right. As
1: if that's the cure all for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So there, there are some really strong providers out there, uh, folks like uh, Hortonworks, Cloudera, Datastacks, uh, TenGen, uh, and they're all built, well, they're not necessarily built on the same engine. Uh, DataStax, for example, is built on Cassandra, and Hortonworks and Cloudera is built on Hadoop. Uh, but in right. SQL two, 2012, uh, Microsoft has built a lot of integration points for that NoSQL sort of uh work. So you can integrate very nicely with Hadoop uh, through new drivers that Microsoft has announced for it. And so if you're doing NoSQL work, then there is a lot more connectivity in there that it'll, it'll make your job a lot easier. So that, you know, very, very seldom now do we work with just one database engine. And so now you can really you can really spread your wings there. One of the things I love about the NoSQL engine, whichever kind you choose is that it's, it's perfect for developers. We as developers like to, uh, I personally, uh, as a developer, I like to kind of sketch something in uh, and then come back and add more detail like an artist does. You know, I make an initial sketch and mm-hmm. then I add some more and I darken, I shade, and I do this and I that. And so it doesn't require any of that enormous amount of database modeling. You know, if you've heard of those physical, conceptual, logical models that DBAs, will make you normalize something to third normal form. You don't have to do that with the NoSQL platform. Oh, for sure. Don't over-codify it. Right. With a relational database, you, you have to do this schema on design. You have to design what your tables look like, what the data types are, and whether they're null and not null. No. With the NoSQL platforms, it's schema on extraction. So we have a lot of customers, I interface with a lot of people, who, just, who set it up to just collect everything. And I'll figure out later what if that I'm going to use. I might not, you know, I might throw away two thirds of it, but I can sketch it in to begin with and I can add more and more and more later on as I iterate
2: through many changes. Yeah, and it, 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 we've done a couple of shows in the past now uh, talking about sort of using NoSQL and SQL Server together, so that NoSQL sits on the front end, sort of in the in the transactional fury of storing objects on the fly while the user is waiting, and then SQL sits a little further back, getting that data decomposed into rows and tables, so that they still use the reporting tools and the data analysis tools that they're used to. Yes,
0: in, indeed, and. It- you know, you, you mentioned uh, having it on the back end for reporting. I think one of the things also mm-hmm. that is, has really firmed up in the NoSQL world is that SQL really is the lingua franca of data. I mean, and, and right. if you want, you know, if you want to get a lot of people to use your platform, you better have some SQL commands in there that we, you know, at least a select statement. Because uh, it, yeah. it just will not, it won't get the same kind of adoption if, you know, if, if you're competing against another engine that has a select statement or
2: many SQL statements uh, you're not going to do as well if you don't have that compared to them sure yeah no it's absolutely an issue Uh, I I, want to bring up specifically for SQL Server 2012 because over on the run as side we did a show recently where we talked about the fact that Microsoft changed the licensing model on SQL 2012 oh boy don't get me started You're you're it's hit you too, huh? Because this is not a small thing. This is sort of bodes for a more difficult future. Yes, it does. Doesn't
1: bother me at all.
2: Just just saying. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're a lucky man. You you go to sleep and you uh, sleep yeah. well at night. Huh? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it was always a black art, and licensing has just seemed to get more complex and more expensive uh, in the, in these last couple releases. In some ways it has gotten easier in that um, you know standard edition is uh, you know is still is still pretty easy and straightforward to license. The the big shift for me and and in the way of thinking that I still really haven't got my arms around is that mm-hmm. with the enterprise or I should say the data center edition it's it's now geared much more towards those very very large multi-core Uh, processing environment you know you could have a two core machine now that could have you know 16 or 32 cpus in it Uh, you know that many cores in it so that's what data center is kind of driving towards now is the customers who have enormous uh, numbers of um you know of of these uh, cpus on there
2: yeah but they now they've changed to this Per socket license where it didn't matter how many cores in each socket you had to a per core license where it really matters how many cores you've got. Like, I think it's making people rethink. Do I want to go to 2012 and am I actually using all those cores? Ah, okay. You know, in, in my
0: mind, some of this is, it's muddy waters. I, I don't always perceive things uh, clearly because there are all kinds of rules about, um, if you have a certain kind of license, then um, Mm -hmm. over, over four, Um, if you have more than four sockets in play, then you don't pay anything additional per core. you know, it's all kinds of little, if this, then that sort of, uh, situations. And I just, I, I go to
2: experts for that. I'm, I'm not the right guy for that. Sure. Yeah. But, and it's really interesting that, you know, I think the guy who's getting nailed is the mid tier guy who had two sockets. With eight cores each, and he used to pay something. What is it? Twenty five thousand dollars a socket, so it's fifty grand. Mm. And now he's paying eight grand a core, and he's got sixteen cores. So you know his price tag's almost doubled. Yeah, indeed, and it's it is
0: really tricky. I, I even wonder. I'm suspicious at times if this is to help nudge us towards the cloud. Um, you know where the yeah. you just. You just pay a direct kind of fee every month according to what you consume.
2: Well, and I also appreciate that Microsoft, by, by pricing per socket, was encouraging people to go multi-core. And now that they've gone there, they're going to start charging by the core um, because everybody's multi-core now. It's just, you know, unavoidable, actually. But you've really got to think about how many cores you're using. And I think it's going to impact Carl at some point because I suspect they're testing this licensing model out to expand propagate it onto windows and Mm -hmm. other products that are also Mm -hmm. you know currently per socket and may end up per core yeah and i I
0: would also encourage your listeners to to consider how it impacts them in terms of parallel programming i mean i just see so Mm -hmm. many programs that just do not take advantage of multiple processors on the machine And, and we really need to See the programmers write better code, more aware code, to take advantage
2: of all that uh, great new hardware under the cover. Absolutely. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again. You guessed
1: it. Time for me to decouple my clusters from my hard drive.
2: My mom told me I'd go blind if I decouple my clusters. (laughs) You should (laughs) not do
1: that. No, no, no. It's time to announce a winner of a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. Uh, We're giving one away to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, did you know that Telerik was one of the first vendors to provide support for Windows Azure back in early 2009 when the cloud platform was first released as the Cloud Trust Protocol? And Telerik now offers everything needed to help .NET developers build quality web, desktop, and Windows phone apps for the cloud quickly and easily out of the box. Check out Telerik.com slash Azure and take the shortcut to Windows Azure development. And when you're there, don't forget to thank them for supporting
2: .NET Rocks. Great. So who's our winner today, Carl?
1: Today's winner is Manny McVicker. Congratulations, Manny. Golf clap for Manny. Golf
2: clap for you, sir
1: shaking those stupid plastic hands again. <laughs>
2: and so what has he won?
1: Well, he wins a DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything Telerik does in one box, a $2,000 value. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .nerox.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button and answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of happy members, and every show we give away something, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection at least. And every December, we're giving away $5,000
2: U.S. worth of technology to a lucky member. Mm -hmm. Just ask Rob Corbett. Yep, we built Rob Corbett an amazing touch and connect-enabled Win 8 development environment uh, through some local suppliers, so he had good warranty support, which was handy because something broke the other day. That's right. And uh, apparently, he's building apps like crazy. We're looking forward to seeing some photos. And we'd
1: like to ask our guests uh, Kevin, if you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology today, toys, whatever it is, what would you buy?
0: I would have no, absolutely no spinning hard disks in my enterprise.
2: Ooh, <laughs> SSDs, <laughs> all SSD, all Every the time. time, all the way. Nice, I love it. But uh, you know, SSDs are are still pretty pricey. They're still most of them, for the most part, are over a dollar a gig.
0: Well, you said 5,000, so that's why I said uh, just
2: the SSD. There you so go. Would, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so at a dollar a gig, that's five terabytes worth of SSD. Well,
0: that's what I need.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the same time, we go back to the spinning disk. I just picked up some of these Hitachi four terabyte hard drives yep. for $200. Yeah, I got a few of them here. It's just incredible the storage capacity we've got these days. It it is. It's, the uh, you know, I tell a story frequently about how the
0: first big IT system I worked on was in the late 80s. I worked uh, as a contractor for NASA and we had built a very, at that time, you know, a very large database system. And it was 130 megabytes, which we thought was practically infinite, you know, infinite in size. Uh, How could you have 130 megabytes of data? And
2: my how times (laughs) have
0: changed.
1: Who would ever use all that? (laughs) <laughs> That's right.
2: <laughs> now I can get a USB key with eight gigs on it that fits up my nose. That's right. You could, you know, you could sneeze and it would just, it would be gone. You'd never find it again. Just fly out into the, <laughs> into the grass. Never catch it again. So, are you comfortable and confident with SSDs in your SQL Server these days? Because I know there's a certain number of IT folks, and I think data people especially, that are still nervous around SSDs. It is. It's rock solid these
0: days. Uh, very few yeah. people are, are are afraid to do it. The big question is, can I afford to, you know, to go with all SSDs or can I afford to just put maybe one of my most important databases on there? Uh, I would say most, most customers I know
2: are, are trying to fit SSDs in there somewhere. The case has been proven. Mm-hmm. Now can we make the numbers work? You can actually get them everywhere. And it's just about, you know, we get, we're talking about the no thing versus SQL server. And part of the complaint here is that under load SQL can have performance problems. And I think uh, SSDs are one way to address that, try and get them to go faster. Absolutely. And that's a, that brings up a really, really good
0: point, uh, Richard. One of the things that is in, uh, I'm not sure if I'd call it beta or it's in Microsoft's tap sort of uh, release cycle uh, where the uh, mm-hmm. technical advisory programs, you know, and that sort of thing. It's it's a new set of SQL Server features called Hecaton, which is Greek for 100 times. So, when you think about a mm-hmm. great big uh, database system, uh, you, you know, you you realize that there are all these different buffers in there. There's a buffer cache for the data and a plan cache for the execution plans for the SQL statements, and then it has these Crazy processes like checkpoint, which flushes dirty pages from memory to the disk and, you know, all kinds of things. There's lazy writer, which, uh, you know, clears out aging and ghosted plans from the plan cache. Lots of mechanisms, all kinds of moving parts behind the scenes. And all of those moving parts were predicated on the idea that we, we have very expensive, very precious and very small amounts of memory and we have very slow, hard disks. So we're going to try and buffer things into big batches so that those disks can get up to their maximum RPM, and then we'll throw them all out there at the disks in a big burst. And that, you know, was primarily the way we've done things since the 60s with uh, big data processing systems. But now, just like what you were saying a minute ago, we can get disks with 4 terabytes of storage for, you know, gosh, you know, couple hundred bucks (laughs) and then you can get ram you know i see customers all the time now that have hundreds of gigabytes if not you know um, some factor of a terabyte you know a half a terabyte three quarters a terabyte of ram that will fit the majority of this It'll fit everybody in the SMB space, the small and medium business space. That'll fit your entire database every time, all the time.
1: The lines between RAM and, and and permanent storage
0: are blurring here. Right. So go back to this idea of Hecaton. What Microsoft realized is why even use any of the mechanisms that we had introduced with early relational databases that were there because of hard disks? memory isn't precious anymore it's not limited right so so in hecaton you will now be able to let's take a fundamental thing that developers have to deal with all the time an angry dba comes to your cube and says there's something wrong with your application it is locking and blocking everything Uh, you know uh, even Mm. if you work very little with relational databases that's something very common that you'll hear uh, you know yelled at you well guess what Hecaton does not lock. It doesn't create latches. It doesn't use 8K data pages. So all sorts of things from the fundamental, you know, roots of the system, the foundation, all the way upward are very, very different and very, very fast. There's a couple uh, use cases you can look up at um, uh, TechNet and MSDN. Uh, one of the companies that is is testing it right now in in production kind of in, in workloads is a company called bwin which is the world's largest uh, you know legal gambling website or i think the term they use is gaming website uh, you know right hundreds of thousands millions of transactions a, a minute and uh, it is a, it has given them about a 40 times not 40 percent 40 times four thousand percent improvement in speed wow yeah, and this is an MSR project? Uh, it is post MSR. So this is actually part of SQL Server now. So if you're an MVP or, um, you're a, uh, what do they call those? Insiders or you're part of the, uh, you know, you're a, a high level customer, uh, in an IT group at a, you know, Fortune 500 company and you have a TAM, the TAM can get you into the program, uh, right now. And there are, Here's one of the key benefits of Hackathon. There are competing uh, in-memory data stores. Uh, There's one called Mm -hmm. HANA, which is part of Sybase, which is part of SAP. Oracle has one called um, Times 10, which is, I think, now part of Exadata. And each of these are separate engines. So you have Mm -hmm. to migrate over to the in-memory database with Hecaton, it's built right into SQL Server. You just tell it which wow. of your tables, yeah, you just tell it which of your tables you want to go into uh, to be in memory structures and which of them you don't. And it handles it seamlessly. It's, it's a,
2: it's going to be a game changer. It's very, very impressive. Well, and I would like it when an MSR project makes it out into the rest of the world. You know, witness F sharp this it's very cool when they, there's something so compelling that it's like, all right, this needs to be a product. Let's get to it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a there's actually a neat um,
0: article on the Microsoft Research website called Hecaton Breaks Through. And it mm-hmm. talks about how the SQL Server product team was actually looking at a different technology to use something. I believe it was called, um, I can't remember the exact term, something like uh, uh, slip lists. Which is a different way of controlling structures in memory. And so with slip lists, they said, well, we've heard about this project in research, Microsoft research. Let's go talk to them about it. And they saw a demo and they're like, whoa, throw slip lists in the trash bin. This is enormously better. Right. You just in their, you know, their little simple test, they hit 250,000 transactions a second, very fast. Wow. Wow. That's amazing don't know if you've ever worked with developing an application that has issues with the transaction log, but that's a typical bottleneck. Uh, you know, It takes a lot of logging uh, for, for a particular mm-hmm. set of operations to get completed. With Hecaton, you can even uh, declare objects to be, um, well, they have a special term for it. Uh, the gist of it is that we can declare this object to be kind of ephemeral. We don't care if, it, if it's recoverable or not. So we don't need you to write all this stuff to the transaction log. Just, you know, it's disposable. And, you know, that's one of many features that is built into it that makes it uh, just a really, really big improvement.
2: Yeah, well, it's really interesting. If you don't care about how reliable something is, you can make it really, really fast. You know, it's like a cache. You don't really need to update it. You could always regenerate it. But the main thing is now that it's there, you can grab it and manipulate it and pull it where you need to. It's always in memory indeed indeed and so if you're familiar
0: with um if you're familiar with sql server you know how to write uh transactions to a table you know how to read from a table Uh, you won't have anything new to learn with hackathon it's
2: very very powerful it just works so is this actually in sql 2012 or is it as a ctp how do you get it yes it's as it's as a ctp at
0: this stage so okay uh you you know you sign some papers some ndas and i'm just Everything I've mentioned now is all public knowledge. But uh, to actually get the bits, right. uh, you do have to sign
2: a, a, a couple papers, and Microsoft will get you set up. So it's open for those that want it and are willing to jump through the hoops. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. exciting stuff. And, and certainly, you know, it's transformative. I keep wondering w- what SQL is going to do to be more NoSQL-like in some respects. And this, this almost seems like one of them, mm-hmm. except it's yes. still using SQL in the process.
0: If you wanted to ever research it deeper, you could look. uh, You could look up something called X Velocity, and this talks about a lot of the different technologies that are really answers to the NoSQL movement, Um,
2: uh, and those are being incorporated and built right into SQL Server. Nice. So Microsoft is responding. It's not. There are alternatives. They're not just ignoring the fact that there's a movement here against. In typical relational databases,
0: absolutely, and it's—I would say
2: it's—it's it's very close to top of mind for them. This is this is something that they think about a lot. Mm-hmm. You don't think about them that way, but it's good to know that actually. And it, I mean, the reality is, SQL is still pretty good at an awful lot of stuff that we need to do day in day out. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, most of us um, need.
0: The equivalent of a phone book, you know, we need to put names and phone numbers and contact, you know, we just need text and numbers in there. We, we don't need really crazy, unusual types of uh, data storage, but mm-hmm. sometimes we do. And so SQL server has, has taken great strides in, in those areas to, to better support many different types of data types. They just added spatial data types.
2: Yeah. Uh, in case you need to store things, in you know, in the three-dimensional world. And that's still a fairly challenging part of the system, right? Like all that geospatial stuff, whether it's longitude and latitude or marking out polygons, so forth, still not simple to do. Indeed, it's not. And it's, it's something that many
0: applications, many… Um, project struggle with. So the thing that's really great about adding a spatial data type, you know, I've had smart developers say, Hey, you know, I can always subtract two coordinates, one set of longitude and latitude from another one. And, Uh, So why don't I just store those as numbers in in the database? Sure, of course you can do that. But now you've got to write all the functions to call those, you know, to judge distance between two spaces, to to handle, uh, you know, all the different nuances of what it means to be uh, a location in three dimensions. Whereas when you use the spatial
2: data types, that's all built in. It just sort of works. Mm -hmm. Although how well do those spatial data types map into .NET types? How do I actually have to handle this data when I want to use it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um,
0: and to be honest, I don't know the .NET side well enough.
2: Sure, sure, I
0: understand. I can tell you that the that's something that Microsoft is aware of. And one of the things they're trying hard to do is to make this data easier and more available for the not developer type. So uh, there's right. new features, you know, built into uh, integrated into Excel so that you can see three-dimensional imagery or three-dimensional
2: data just by using plain old excel to pull up some data yeah and that's what needs to happen i, I have just run into folks that it all depends on what geospatial engine you're using how it wants its coordinates and then you've got to sort of map that from what's stored in the database to what your geospatial tools need to use so now it's not for the faint of heart you got to do some some interesting shuffling around, especially if you're dealing with a, with a polygon with actually a set of distances and turns that define a space. Like that just doesn't look like anything when you look at it as data. Exactly. It's just kind of gibberish. <laughs> Pile of gibberish. It's a whole bunch of, 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 uh, you know, uh, long decimal numbers and uh or big decimal numbers and you just don't go, okay what is this it doesn't really mean anything and then you try and feed it to some other utility to try and display it and it goes Yeah, me i don't know what this is either exactly yeah yeah it's it's the sort of thing i, I you know six years as a developer
0: before i switched primarily to database work and uh, i was always thrilled that i uh didn't have to be a math major as well as a you know computer science major and uh, but whenever I worked with three-dimensional geographic spatial data boy I had to crack
2: those math books back open so Carl yeah Richard you ever embed Excel into an application
1: Ugh, you know that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears nice because your end users have to have the right version of office and all that stuff yeah and it has that extra layer of dependency what I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and Plop it right into my .NET application.
2: Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days.
1: Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's component1spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter
2: developers. It makes you think, if you've got a set of polygons, in theory, you ought to be able to query for the total area within the polygons for a given set. I mean, that is core set theory, but it's computational based on the data types. You know, that's a different kind of aggregator. Are we there? Can you actually do that in SQL Server? Uh I believe you can. I, I haven't done it myself, wow. but I believe that's all that's built into those spatial data types. Mm-hmm. So that you know, just when you thought there were no new aggregators out there, you've got a data type that needs its own kind of aggregation. Like that to me is pretty exciting that you literally could have somebody walking around marking off a, a, a set of properties, feeding that data in a database, and then it can tell you the total area of all of those properties. Like that it's that's pretty magical. I think there's yeah. real possibilities there. Yeah,
0: indeed. And there, there's a lot of new third party apps that are you know in development
2: right now because of these new features. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, typical Microsoft, if they can get Excel to consume it, then we don't need any apps at all. We'll just live in Excel. Yeah. yeah. There's 300 million users. Yeah. 300 million users of
0: Excel. So, um, yeah. you know, that's, it's a staggering they number. They can't
2: all be wrong. <laughs> Lots of them are, but not all of them. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm an old enough OLAP guy that I remember when you had to roll your own client or buy your own client, they were expensive. But it seems to me, if you're using Analysis Services, SQL Server these days, your client is Excel. Yep. And if it's not, you should be examining why it's not. Because
0: it's almost as if there's just not any reason not to be in Excel now. Right. And, and it's just the pivot table capabilities of Excel? Mm-hmm. Very Nice. Uh, They've built out several new um, outgrowths there. There's the Power Pivot features, so you can access Mm -hmm. data extremely quickly for enormous data sets. Uh, There's Power View, which was just announced at the past Business Analytics Conference in the spring, uh, just after the SQL and Dev Intersection Conference. And Mm -hmm. uh, so that includes the ability to look at all kinds of all kinds of that spatial data right there in uh, Excel
2: spreadsheet. So uh, again, they're just, they're, they're pushing it forward very hard there. Nice. So, and you just mentioned Dev Intersection. Are you going to be at the show in, in the fall? Yes, indeed. I was there uh, in the spring. Saw you guys uh, mm-hmm.
0: uh, from afar. I was on the other side of the exhibit hall um, and I will be there this fall as well.
2: So looking forward to that. And we do have a sequel section. Uh, do you have any sessions?
0: Uh, you know, I uh, I've got to talk to Kimberly and Paul about that. I did do a keynote session at the last one with the guys from Fusion IO on Tuesday evening, and so I expect I'll have at least one session coming up in, in in the fall.
2: Oh yeah, the Fusion I Go guys were there. I had them on I don't know three years ago on Run As Radio. For those who don't know what this technology is, you you gotta tell them, Kevin. This is crazy stuff. Yeah, this is probably my favorite uh, SSD technology right now for
0: SQL Server or, or relational databases. It's a it's a PCI card that you basically put in, you know, you crack the case, put it in the, the server with your uh, SQL Server, your Oracle database. And it gives you, you know, several terabytes, one, two terabytes of high speed, very high performance uh, flash SSD. So it's super fast, very reliable has great dr- and probably some of the best drivers and management
2: tools out there. So very, very good product. Wow. And it's, and it's getting around the limitations of the, the whole SATA communications channel. You're right against the bus. So talk about FAST. Exactly. You know, so if you have
0: like a one gig iSCSI or you have 10, you know, even the fast ones, 10 gig iSCSI or fiber channel, you still have that, mm-hmm. uh, that whole network you've got to navigate. iSCSI in particular, right. you've got to turn it all into TCP IP packets. You don't have any yep. of that. It's right on the back plane, enormously faster. And mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways, it's just simpler. You know, you don't have all that cabling. You don't have to worry about, oh, you know, how does this play with my SAN or any of those sorts of things? It's just right there. Sure. Sim- simple, easy solution.
2: Very, very fast solution. Right. And priced accordingly. Yes. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you are price sensitive in any way, Fusion IO is going to give you a little bit of a shock. <laughs> <sighs> you know, it's, and that brings up a good point. You know, you you'd mentioned
0: that uh, when we were talking about SSDs uh, a few minutes ago, one of the things you do want, if you're building you know, a high-end system, is you do want to spend a little bit more. You don't want to go into Best Buy or Fry's and pick up the commodity SSDs. Right. The main thing that you get when you buy the commercial vendor products for SSDs is you get a, an enormous additional amount of unavailable space that is set aside for wear leveling. And what that right. means is, uh, you know, on your SSD products, the different uh, cells can only be written a maximum number of times before they begin to kind of reach their maximum saturation. About 10,000 read write operations, maybe 25,000 uh, to a single cell. And so as it gets aged mm-hmm. out, uh, the vendors tend to, I would say the average is probably 20% of additional space is provided kind of hidden away so that it gives you the right. same you know, same lifespan as you might get from a regular hard disk of the same size. So with these more expensive vendors like Fusion I.O., they actually have even more than that 20% that you would get with a commodity
2: um, SSD-style hard- um, disk drive. Yeah, and it's just a buffer against failure because eventually these cells start to fail and then it just switches over to the other ones and lets you know it's failing, but it keeps working.
0: Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's it's really seamless because the the cells, as they are written, uh, and then then they begin mm-hmm. to show show their age. Your data is moved from one cell and then uh, from the older cell, and it is marked as unavailable. So it's never used again. And, right. um, you know, it's, it's moved over to a new cell, and then that one uh, may continue to be used until it ages out as well. So they pack in enough extra space without making it available to you so that you can have a long, long and happy life on those.
2: Well, and you notice, you know, the thing I notice with them now is enterprise-class SSDs have five-year warranties again you know and, and that that really to me speaks volumes if they're willing to warranty them that long then clearly they're getting up to the same reliability factor right yep they sure are yeah, that's that's sort of the kingpin of the whole thing mm-hmm. well kev what are you doing over sequel century
0: yeah um one of the the kind of fun things about my job now at sequel century we make a lot of uh, tools for the SQL Server space, and we've talked about a lot of the high-end, cool new features in SQL Server. One of the things that I'm dealing with a lot in in my uh, day-to-day work is how there are some very simple things that are just kind of perennial, evergreen problems. Like, how do you write good SQL statements? Uh, you know, <laughs> this is a this mm-hmm. is a hard hard challenge for a lot of us because it's uh, you know, SQL is a different kind of language than uh, C sharp or, you know, any of the ASP.NET kind of uh, formats that you are uh, languages that you might like to use. It's, it, it works differently. We do have some very neat offerings I think uh, your development community would like to hear about that are free. Uh, one tool we have is called Plan Explorer. And Plan Explorer will show you any of the queries that you might be working on and it highlights problems for you. It makes it very easy to see what the problems are. Uh, you know, inside a, a SQL statement, there are all kinds of steps that it might take to solve that problem.
2: Sure. I mean, and we've always had in SQL Profile, you could turn on show plan and it would show you the plan. But you got to be able to read that thing.
0: Exactly. That's And that's what we're finding is that a lot of people will look at what Microsoft has given you, you know, the execution plan. And they'll look at it and they'll just scratch their head. They'll say, I just don't even know where to start. So this, the right. free tool, Plan Explorer. Uh, which you can get at SQLCentury.net. It will point out. It'll highlight in red things that are really bad. It'll highlight in you know yellow things that are caution, um, and it and it explains to you where some of these uh, issues might be. So, uh, like a common sure. thing that that a developer might run into, and the tools that come with SQL Server will possibly identify this for you. Is, for example, when you pull a query you can uh, in the execution plan you can pull the estimated plan which mm-hmm. tells you what what it thinks sql server will do or you can get the actual right. plan which actually runs the query and if you ever have a situation where the estimated plan is a lot different than the actual plan you actually know that you have um your indexes are way out of date right or out of date statistics right exactly right the thing is if you know i'm working as a developer i you know, I might not even really do much with that database. That's all the DBA, and so sure. uh, I wouldn't even know how to pull those kind of numbers. Uh, you know what? You know what? What do I go to to get that information? And so this this tool puts it all in there for you, and it'll highlight that particular problem as an intermediate level problem. So it'll show to you in orange that this is the case. Your indexes are bad, and so uh, not necessarily bad indexes; they're just out of date. Your statistics aren't fresh, and so you need to to
2: get those refreshed. Yeah, And that's just one of many examples of what it can do. That's cool. Well, thanks very much for that. We'll include a link to the, uh, in the show notes so folks can go pick it up.
0: One, uh, one other thing I think that your community might like as well is that um, the tool includes a feature where you can upload a plan that you're looking at to our discussion forum. So we have a discussion form at answers.sqlperformance.com. And SQLPerformance.com is a blog that uh, that we do at our company. That's just about how to make SQL Server go faster. And sure. if if you're using the Plan Explorer, you can actually say, "I don't understand what this is telling me," or "I've tried lots of alternatives. I thought I knew a better way to do this, and they don't seem to be working." So you can upload them to the discussion forum there. And myself, Aaron Bertrand, who's another well-known SQL Server MVP, Paul White, uh, uh, yet another, and probably the mm-hmm. the the best SQL server execution plan tuner out there. We all read that on a regular basis. And so we'll, we'll solve your problem. There's no fee for it. It's it's just part. Yeah. It's just part of the community effort. Awesome.
1: Wow, guys. Well, I guess that's a show. I've enjoyed listening to it.
0: (laughs) 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 Don't talk so much next time.
1: Yeah. I hope you don't mind me just hanging out and listening, but uh, I always learn a lot when I, when Richard talks databases with anybody. So thank you very much, Kevin.
0: Carl, always a pleasure. Enjoyed it.
1: All right. And we'll see you guys next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com.